If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. So what are we talking about today? We are taking things on from 1857, where we left the last podcast. And 1857 left this unbelievable scar across the whole of North India. There were the most disgusting war crimes ever committed, probably by the British anywhere, in particularly three main cities, Delhi, Lucknow and Kanpur. Certainly tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians are bayoneted, hung, blown from cannons. Um, and anyone who thinks that the British Empire was benign should read the letters uh, of this period because even figures like Dickens are writing, mm. delete Delhi, uh, wipe it out, sc- scratch it from the face of the earth. Because what the people in Britain were being fed was this this propaganda that child eating monstrous natives particularly women raping monstrous natives and there's this idea that the that the mutineers when they rose up raped every british woman in india and um performed unimaginable atrocities and it's certainly true that there were atrocities at the beginning of the uh, of the uprising but they were you know fractional compared to the unbelievable retribution men having to lick up the blood in the bibigar sewn into pigskins and blown from the mouths of cannon mm. and this went on for months i mean there were very organized manhunts the, the my book the the last mogul was written from a group of papers called the mutiny papers which are very carefully preserved in the national archives of india um because they were the evidence used by the lawyers and the prosecutors in 1857 to round up anyone in the in the in the royal court, anyone in the mutineers' camp, anyone whose name appears in those documents, uh, had a price on their head, and there was bounty being offered. So it was literally wild west bounty hunters type exactly. of stuff. Of where are you? And then rounding up families of people. If you don't find the person, you find find the families. And there were stories of you know princes who mm. were sort of disguised as fakirs living in courts like Udaipur, technically beyond the uh, the reach of of the Raj. 
um, who are being caught and brought back to Delhi for bounty 20 years later. So this is a really important um, moment in the changing of the psyche of two countries. So first of all, Britain now does not see that the time of Ochtaloni and the white Mughals is dead. dead you do not yeah. trust the natives. That is now the, the message that is loud and clear going across Great Britain, Westminster in particular. And in particular, the school which churns out the Indian civil service. Because now, of course, the other thing that changes is this is now no longer a company that is taking care of business in India. It is a country. It is now state intervention. The East India Company Navy is sold off. The East India Company Army is integrated into the British Army. The East India Company Civil Service is integrated into the uh, Indian Civil Service as it now, as it now becomes. Uh, and you get this transformation of, of company rule into state rule. By 1870, Disraeli makes Queen Victoria the Empress of India, and it's a time when you have a, a complete realignment also of the of the elites of of India. For the last 600 years, uh, there's been a large Muslim elite in North India, uh, and that doesn't just mean that, that there's rulers and uh, and civil servants and cavalrymen and uh, and military men. Uh, culturally, Persianate culture has been the the dominant thing. So, the kind of poetry that's being written in towns like Lucknow, Hyderabad, and Delhi is Indian versions of Hafiz or Ferdowsi. Mm -hmm. um, Persian is the language of high culture in a way that Sanskrit had been in ancient India. Uh, but now everyone wants to speak English. It has to be English, English in documents, yeah. English in court, English in any kind of civil society. And all civil society is now under the control of the British. We've also got, I mean, the reason we're, we're here today, this podcast is largely about a, another turning point. So if you think that the, the mutiny, which we've, by the way, if you've missed it, go back and listen. There's a, a, a podcast on that. But this is now another major turning point in the relationship between Britain and India. So if 1857 soured a relationship, 1919 marks the beginning of the end of the British Raj, even though you know they're going to stay stick around for decades longer. There is something that happens in 1919 which flicks a switch in Indian mind. So if you think that the uprising or the mutiny was the thing that flicks the switches in British minds that, you know, now we come and we take it all and we're not even pretending that we're trading. We are in control. This is now ours. Then 1919 does it to the Indian minds and the Indian psyche. Um, so just, I mean, just a bit of background on the, the lead up to 1919. After the Raj is declared in 1858 and India becomes a colony of Britain rather than a, a possession of the East India Company. You have uh, a massive change, particularly in the military system in India. Previously, the there was a tiny uh, white officer elite, and all the all the fighting men were Indian sepoys recruited in in North India. Now, large numbers of British soldiers start coming, particularly Irish and Scots, and um, so you have large barracks full of white soldiers. And following the unbelievably violent reprisals to eighteen fifty seven. There is virtually no resistance in India for the next 20, 30 years. There is such memories of the, of the unbelievable bloodshedding. The devil's wind. The devil's wind, that, that no one dares protest. So you have this sort of high Victorian period um, when British rule and the English language is imposed on India, when there is virtually no resistance because people are so scared, because the, the, the uh, unbelievable uh, bloodshed which had happened uh, in 1857. But 
Another thing has happened, which is that the elites have changed. So you've moved from the the the, the dominant Mughal elite with with Persianate culture, and you've had the rise now of the different the different Hindu um, castes. You have the, the 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 for example the Delhi Banyas, the bankers, um, are become the richest and by far the most uh, uh, prosperous and powerful people in Delhi, and people no longer want to start writing Persian poetry. They want to be like Wordsworth. They mm. no longer wear, uh, for, for smart occasions, their traditional dress. Quite a lot of them adopt uh, European suits and so on. So there is a fundamental sense that not only has British rule been imposed, but the whole prestige associated with mm. Mughal culture and Mughal dress it's and been Mughal poetry has been wiped out. And what's really, no one wants to, no. that's regarded as old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy by the end. If you, if you look at now. some of the letters from Indians at the time, I mean, they could have been written by Uriah Heep because the, the sign-offs of some of these letters of people who have, you know, actually, let's face it, kind of newly learnt English but embraced it. They've embraced high... British culture as if it's the best thing in the world. So, you know, I most humbly crave your pardon to be disturbing you, yours sincerely. <laughs> the the, the sign-offs of some of these letters at the time are extraordinary. And you get people like Ghalib, who who's one of the last survivors from the Mughal elite. He hadn't joined the mutiny. He, he'd, he'd very clearly um, distanced himself between him and the, uh, and the court in 1857. So he's not killed. He survives. When he's pulled, pulled before a British magistrate, he says, are you a Muslim? And he says, well... Uh, I, I don't eat pork, but I do drink wine. And, and mm. the magistrate laughs and he gets off. Ghalib dies finally the same year that Mahatma Gandhi is born. And now very clearly the, the way is not Indo-Persian culture. It's not the Mughal ways. It's not the, the, the Islamic. If you want to get on, you become a lawyer and you try to get to London uh, and you want to embrace the whole British thing. Mm. And there's a whole generation that grows up that begins to half believe the British propaganda that they are this this uh, uh, race that brings justice and civilization. They're fair. Uh, and that they they're have fair. laws, they have judges, they have order. And it's this that the event in 1919 that we're talking about today shakes. That moment of uh, in, in the late Victorian period between the memories of the reprisals of 1857 and the loss of faith in the British that happens in 1919. It's that period uh, that we're looking at now. We are, and and you were talking about the the birth of um, you know Gandhi and Ghalib and and these enormous figures. There's also you know not as doesn't loom as large here in Britain at all, but in in the north of India looms enormously. Uh, a man called Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who was born in 1864. He was an Irishman, as you were saying, you know, sort of Irish and Scots beat a path to India um, after the mutiny because that's where you make your name. It's where you make your fortune. It's where you become part of the elite. Even speaking, if you speaking as a Scot, the Scots always like to feel that you know they're they're with William Wallace and that yeah. they're in the resistance, eternally down crushed by by the English. But the reality is that that after the Jacobite Rebellion in 1745, after the second rebellion is crushed and Body Prince Charlie disappears overseas, the Scots embrace empire in a far more enthusiastic way than than the English, and the Scots outnumber the English proportionately. Uh, uh, hugely uh, in India. You have whole towns. I mean, I've seen a picture of a Dundee high school reunion in Calcutta in about 1870 when there are about 400 people around yeah. the table. Well, the I mean, likewise with the Irish. I mean, you know, the, the, the story that we're about to tell you is about a, a man, an Irishman, very much in the centre of all of this. And when I did write a, a book about this, The Patient Assassin, um, 
to this day, I get apology letters from people in Ireland saying, <laughs> we had no idea. We had, um, in, in, and I will quote one, this bastard was our bastard. So let, let me just tell you, let, let's, let's tell you a little bit about Sir Michael. Um, Michael O'Dwyer, as he was born, uh, was born in Tipperary and he was an Irish Catholic. So unusual because the Catholics in Ireland at this time knew only too well how difficult British rule could be. You know, his neighbours and his father's neighbours John O'Dwyer, they had suffered through the potato famine. They were on their knees. But John O'Dwyer's family were a little bit different because they had money still. They had money, they had a bit of land, they had a bit of you know livestock. So they were comfortably off, you could say. Um, he was part of a big Irish Catholic family and he absolutely worshipped his father. His father was everything and everything to him. But his father was really unusual among Irish Catholics because he believed in British order. You know, like you were saying about sort of Indians started to believe that order and civilization, inverted commas, came through British rule. That's exactly what Michael Edouard's father thought. He thought, actually, we should have loyalty to king and country. That is the only way. He didn't like the kind of disorder that he was seeing from the nascent Fenians who were springing up and setting fire to things around him. He found that disorderly, thuggish. He called them hotheads. He hated them. So it's that in that environment that little Michael is born and brought up. And so he starts, you know, almost from the mother's teat, drinking this truth that British rule is order, nationalism is bad, it's dangerous. And that really is, you know, that's his early wiring. And there's also a fear very much that he's brought up with that generation that 1857 could happen again, that you could again get the this mass of Indians as he sees it rising up against the, the women, of the, uh, the British women in India in particular are regarded as these sacred objects which must not be touched. Yeah, 100%. And he and you know and it's reinforced um by the Indian Civil Service. So the ICS their training is predicated on how do you avoid 1857 again. And the the message that is like a big Belisha beacon over every single classroom that is going on within the ICS service is do not trust the natives. Do not trust the natives. It is just a, you turn your back on the natives and they will put a scimitar through your shoulder blades so there's a real sort of fear and loathing which is bred into this and it's a small cadre never bigger than 1200 people in the ics who go over to india who are going to control india which to me again those numbers are astonishing you know a, a massive population you controlled often by 1200. see in in pro-british writings about the raj that uh, how we were clearly this this much loved imperial force goes the argument because how could so few Englishmen control so many? Yeah. But the reality was that you know it was on the back of, of of a pile of skulls that had been created in 1857. So you know it was possible for as as the legend went, you know, a single white man on a horse to walk through at night any place uh, in India completely safely. Uh, because everyone was so scared by the retribution they'd seen. But you begin to get the first ripples of resistance in is it 1905 when Curzon partitions Bengal so yes I mean so just you know this is so Curzon is the viceroy of India he is an incredibly pompous individual in fact his his school friends tease him relentlessly is it do you know the, the poem the dog roll that comes from is it Bailey my or, name is the, George Nathaniel Curzon I am the most ridiculous person, person. Yes. superior person. superior <laughs> person um so you know he is a man who wants with shiny epaulets and gun salutes to put Indians in their place. And he is the person who presides over the first 
Delhi Darbar, which is going to be a way in which very physically and, and visually you can show the natives that even their princes, the princes we have allowed to stay on their thrones, the Nawabs we have allowed to stay in their Havelis, they all come forward. We give them the number of gun salutes we think they deserve. So you have all these Indian princelings, ridiculous men, fighting over how many pops of the gun they're going to get. And they all and bow be before said the king emperor. The, the Maharajas, the princes who are left by this stage, are those who allied with the English in 1857. So all those, like the Rani of Jhansi, who rise up against the, what's then the company in, mm. in 1857, have, have long been hung and, and sent off into exile. Mm. Uh, hung or sent off into exile. Yes, I know. It's difficult to be in exile a bit. It's not, <laughs> doesn't go well. Um, but but, sort of, so, so you have basically, the, you know, the Quislings left, the guys like like the Sindias or the um, the Hulkers or these, these these forces that could have risen up against them. And the ones that the internationalists will call the sellouts yeah, yeah. Is, is who who are left. So, uh, and just, they're given ranking. Just so they have be, yeah, hundred yeah. gun salute, fifty gun salute, according to how salute. useful the British might yeah. find them. Um, but, but sort of the person who's watching all of this is is young Tipperary boy, a Michael Edouard, who has come over to India in eighteen eighty five, and he is when he comes over to India, he is that lone white man on a horse. So he comes first of all into Lahore. He's been given the whisper that Punjab is going to be his place. And Punjab is a problem. That Punjab, there are two centers of discontent in India. One is Punjab, one is Bengal. They're churning out violent men and insurrectionists, and they are the places that need to be squashed. So he sees Curzon when Curzon decides to partition Bengal, that that is a way of dealing with problems like this. Curzon decides that, you know, if I put a line through Bengal, I can turn Hindus against Muslims. That is the nationalist argument. He says it's to control this very large area and have a better civil society in this area. But Indians see it as the first example with a line in a map of divide and rule in India. And to this day, Bengalis still rankle about it. It's considered a, one of the worst things done by the British. Well, when Michael arrives in Punjab, and I'll call him Michael just because there, there are names which conflate here in this massacre story. There is a man who you will meet in a minute called Rex Dyer and Sir Michael O'Dwyer. And in Indian minds, these two are often conflated into one joint little devil uh, called Michael Dyer or Rex <laughs> O'Dwyer. I mean, you'll see Google searches on this. So, so I'm going to just call them sort of Michael and Sir Michael for um, our man who will inevitably be in control of Punjab at the time of the the 1919 episode. You need to tell me about the First World War, because that obviously is a major turning point for the British Empire. And what's the response in India? Well, so, so Sir Michael has risen through the ranks and he has now become Lieutenant Governor of Punjab. And he's done that through having very little interaction with Indians. He doesn't like them. He doesn't trust them. He thinks they're backstabbing snakes. He very famously and proudly writes in his own memoirs about how when he's invited to picnics with Maharajas, he takes his own sandwiches and he eats them. He won't eat anything that's prepared. Even a Maharaja prepares food with his own hands and he won't eat that. He'll eat what he's brought, which is sort of spam sandwiches with him. Um, so he has that kind of disdain. But what in the run up to the First World War, he is very keen to establish that he is in control. So when the call goes out, that they need soldiers to fight in World War One. Sir Michael's right on it. He's decided that actually it's going to be a competitive sport and he's going to send more men to fight in World War One than any of the other um, lieutenant governors of any of the provinces in India. And he's got a head start, hasn't he? Because the British have, uh, by this stage, begun to identify what they call martial races 
of which the Punjabis are one. And and so get they get sort of prior access to the British Army on a sort of ethnic sort of um, hierarchy almost. Well, he, and, yeah. and, and Sir Michael exploits every fissure that he possibly can. So he refers to Punjab, his province, as the sword hand of India. He says, you know, I've got all of the fighters, the natural born savage fighters are all in my constituency. But what he does is he goes around to different parts of Punjab and he'll say in Amritsar, he'll say, you Sikhs, you're, you're effeminate and you're useless. Look at all the Muslims who have been provided in this village here. He'll go to a Muslim area and say, you think you're warriors, you think you're strong. Look at the Hindus that have been conscripted or who've joined up. It's, it's not conscription just say this, at this, is, this point. is part of a sort of ethnic ranking of India that the British have sort of developed by this time. We tend to think of sort of racial hierarchies as something that the Germans invented with, with, uh, in, in the Nazi ideology, the Jews at the mm. bottom of the pile. But you find books written at this period in the 1870s in India. There's, there's, there's a, a, a large, I think, three-volume photographic book of the peoples and tribes of Indias. Uh, and they have these sort of caustic little comments, like sort of a degenerate tribe full of criminals. Oh, so Michael does it himself. He does his own <laughs> yeah. version. I mean, he writes his own little version, its own little pocket <laughs> guide to the savages, where he does these sort of sweeping generalizations about ethnic groups. You know, the Beals, you never meet one who's sober. You know, the Sikhs, they're quite thick, but quite useful. <laughs> you know, he's got these really disparaging remarks in his own in his own words. Um, but he, you know, whatever he does, it works. And there are also reports in, in Punjab about men being press ganged into fighting. You know, sometimes a, a man, a recruiter will turn up into a village and everyone will have disappeared overnight because the rumour is going around that they're forcing people out to fight. That is a good place for us to just pause for a moment and take a short break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalised jewellery, style, decor and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome back to Empire. So Indian troops are being shuttled to the battlefields of France. And just remember, these are people, some of whom have never been out of their own villages, and they are chronically under-equipped. They don't have the right boots, the right coats. 
So many die from the cold. It is as much an enemy as the Germans. And and the biggest destination for most of the Indian troops is the back end of the Ottoman Empire. Indian troops get sent into a place called Kut, which is now in Iraq, where there's initially a complete fiasco. uh, And there's a siege which, uh, and and many, many uh, Indian troops are either captured as prisoners of war or killed or die of starvation in the siege. Uh, And it's a real old-fashioned sort of grueling um, sort of medieval siege that goes on at Kut. So when you wander around, in my um, local village on the outskirts of Delhi, Meroli, um, the, the, there's a plaque that I pass um, on, on my daily walk, and it says from the the Zales of Badapur and Meroli, I can't remember the figures, but something like 250 men went off to mm. the Great War, mm. uh, of whom uh, 80 did not come back. So, so then that you know that's the really important thing because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, you you sent all these boys off, and they are boys, a lot of them, to fight who've just never been anywhere, and their families need these boys <laughs> to work the farms and look after their aged parents. And when the news of deaths, bodies don't come back. It's just the missing news of the missing comes back. So you know, with very religious people who believe in cremating or burial before sunset, this is a double wound. You know, they're never their their children are dead on a field in Basra somewhere. They're never going to see them again in Punjab because so many of those casualties come from the north. There are waves of mourning which come sweeping back, and that creates a really fertile ground for insurrectionists. Like the thing that might. So Michael is always thought exists he partially creates because of his sort of very enthusiastic rounding up of of fighting men so you know you have a situation in 1915 where an organization is starting to gain a lot of momentum called the gather movement you know what is our credo revolution they have a newspaper which revels in how you have to kill the british to get them out they're never going to go they're sending our boys to die so we've got to kill them first and it is a violent movement based on force you know there's no negotiating with these people there's no power sharing they're out to kill us we've got to kill them first so when these guys come back from the first world war you've got thousands of punjabis who survive they come back and they're expecting a kind of reward aren't they they, they-, they absolutely are they're expecting a reward and sort of just during the war by the way the gathers are so i should say so successful that they try they have enough at least confidence in themselves to try and start a second mutiny so again, everything that Sir Michael thought <laughs> would happen is kind of happening on his watch, and some may argue because of his actions. So there's a there's a it's called the Hindu German conspiracy, where some of the Gather movement get in touch with the Germans, who let's not forget are fighting World War One with the British, saying we will help you, we will start a revolution in the ranks, just as they did in the mutiny. We'll get our Indian soldiers to rise up. Now the thing is, Sir Michael is very very good at one thing: intelligence. He understands that. He needs to be on, because he's so paranoid and he's kind of, through his paranoia, he creates the problem, but also is sort of all over the problem. He manages to infiltrate that plot, the Hindu-German conspiracy. I mean, to his- Where is that? In Flanders or? It, it's going to be that the Punjab cavalry is going to rise up and kill its um, kill its masters and then it'll start an insurrection, which will spread all through India. The British will be so diverted in India, so then the Germans can make gains. And the, the conspiracy- is taking place and orchestrated out of his reach because Sir Michael is very sort of hang-happy, if you can put it that way. He hangs more people um, in Punjab, in his province, in a year than are hanged in all of Great Britain throughout the period of the war. So he's, you know, he's a person who is punitive and feared in India. But 
when these troops come back, the, the troops who are actually in the trenches do not mutiny. They are very loyal. They're very many, loyal. Many of them because they're expecting, you know, the yeah. honour and the glory when they come back. And they also expect some sort of political uh, do. reward, don't they? They expect. The, they, they expect. There's, there's talk about dominion status, such as uh, New Zealand and Australia and Canada have. Uh, but instead, what happens? An, an act is passed. An act is passed. So, so during the war, the British passed the Defence of India Act, which is. Which is understandable in, in times of war, countries do this, you know, you, no sedition, no criticising of the British, but they go further, they suspend habeas corpus, anything, anyone can be arrested at any time for acting against the state and against the war effort. Armistice happens on the 11th of November, 1918, everyone thinks that these acts are going to loosen up. And as you say, quite rightly, you know, dominion status and rewards will be ours for our loyalty. Do you know one of the most loyal people during this period is a man called Gandhi. He is the chief recruiting officer for the British effort. He, like Sir Michael, bizarrely is travelling around India saying, if you are not strong enough to fight this war, you're not strong enough to have your own country. I mean, there are, there are tracts of his speeches which could have come out of Sir Michael O'Dwyer's mouth. He is more loyal than the king because he also believes in this promise that if we show ourselves to be good friends, then our friends will leave us and we will have a good relationship, a bilateral relationship, but, you know, we will end on good terms. So what year is it that this repressive act, the Rowlett Act, is it, passed? It comes in straight after Armistice. So the Rowlett Act is basically yeah. an extension of the, the Defence of India Act. It's a, rolling, it's a rolling legal situation, but it's just named something else. It's named after uh, a, 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 the judge um, Rowlett. So what happens? What's the effect? Well, Gandhi's when, when the, had it. Everyone, everyone is presuming they're going to be rewarded. Instead, they're given this repressive act. So what, what's Gandhi the reaction on the ground? Gandhi is so incandescent at the betrayal because he too has sent men to die in this war. I mean, he said all sorts of ludicrous things like, you know, people have pointed out, you're meant to be nonviolent. You're asking people to go fight. He said, well, I will ask them to stand up when the time is right and just be shot by the Germans. So our bodies form a dam that will stop the violence and the Germans will see how terrible it is. I mean, there's, there's cuckoo stuff coming from Gandhi at this time. But his, his sense of betrayal is such that he says, you know what? These are black acts. They are so anti-legal. And he's a lawyer at the end of the day. He's a you know, British trained lawyer. He finds them so offensive. He says, right, we're going to fight back. We're going to have a prayer day because he doesn't believe in violence. We're going to have a prayer day where everything stops. It is, in other words, going to be a strike. <laughs> where, yeah. Because you can't strike because the Rowlett Act doesn't permit strikes. That is anti-state and therefore people can be picked up. But if you call it a prayer day, what are they going to do? So he marks the prayer day down for the 30th of March, 1919. That's where everybody's going to down tools. No trains will run. No letters will be posted. No telegrams will be sent. Everything will stop. The shops will be shuttered up. That's the plan. And you know what? It's extraordinarily ambitious to try and unite a country. As you, you know, very beautifully said in previous podcasts, you know, this is a jigsaw country that's been united at times under things like Mughal law, then bits of it have been united under different empires. But for the first time, you know, there's a jigsaw country that is under British rule. And he is trying to get every bit of that puzzle to stop on the 30th of March. And he galvanizes it, you know, he it really works. So if you in the north of India and in Punjab, which is uh, the place where our focus is going to be largely for this podcast. There are two men who are Gandhi devotees who marshal the peace. Dr. Satchapal and Dr. Kitchaloo. Kitchaloo. Now, so one is, one is a really um, chatty lawyer, Seferdeen Kitchaloo. Again, these are, these are people, Seferdeen Kitchaloo went to Cambridge, went to Peterhouse, Cambridge. And 
suffered a lot of racism actually while he was at Cambridge. So his whole worldview was turned upside down by his loneliness at, at Cambridge and the way he was treated. He sort of comes as the brightest in his year and he's treated like a piece of dirt here. So he goes back with this sense of the British really aren't our friends. And then uh, Dr. Satyapal, who is a man who's received the Viceroy's commission in the Indian Medical Service, so he's been a really loyal little soldier, but also through one reason or another, has seen the way in which you know his countrymen are treated in India. So they become fully signed up Gandhians. They believe in the Gandhi peaceful way. We've got to, they've got to leave, but we'll do it peacefully, not violently. And in the part of the Punjab that we're focusing in, the Amritsar district, they are the leading Gandhians. They are, they are the Gandhi's ones. men. Yeah. And you know they hold that they mark that thirtieth of March date where the prayer day in peace not a shot is fired not a stick is hit in delhi nearby it's a very different story what goes you on have there? marauders who are going around trying to enforce the prayer you know <laughs> so you you will have in sir michael's words hotheads everywhere so they notice in the delhi market that some of the shops haven't closed down they haven't locked up for this what is ostensibly a strike and they're not praying hard enough <laughs> So they start to come out and intimidate the shop owners. The British respond with overwhelming, and Gandhi argues, unreasonable force. And they fire volleys into these crowds of people indiscriminately. So some, you know, some say there were better ways of doing this, but people fall and people die, this which is then early accelerates this. This is, this is from 30th of March, yeah. 1919. So these are, these are the weeks leading up to the massacre. This is the backdrop. You've got to understand why everybody is so on edge. So Gandhi's fed up because the British have let him down. So Michael is expecting an uprising. Um, Gandhi has has reacted with a day of prayer and there are outbreaks of violence in Delhi, not, not in Amritsar, not in Lahore, but in Delhi, miles away. And so Michael sees this as a sign it's coming, it's coming my way. And the thing that, you know, you said a little while ago, this, this whole thing from the um, time of the mutiny, that the, the British narrative is that they're going to come and rape our women. women. He's got his wife and his daughter in India. It's really, really important that he's got his wife and his daughter at Governor House in Lahore at this time. So he is living with this anxiety bolus in his stomach. And I, and I told you so feeling. Anyway, after this, this firing into the crowd, Gandhi is livid. He is absolutely livid. And he says, this is reprehensible. We are going to respond to this. We are going to have, an, seven days later, a, a day called Black Sunday where nobody does anything all day. It is going to be the largest general strike the world has ever seen. So it's going to make prayer day look like you know a, a tiny blip in service. He's going to shut it all down. And everyone's very, very excited about this. There are handbills being printed in Amritsar. They're being spread throughout the city. You know, nothing, Black Sunday, Mark Black Sunday, all throughout India, this is, is going to take place. Now, Sir Michael knows about this. Every lieutenant governor and every governor of India knows that this is coming. They also know that Gandhi has this idea that he's going to travel to Punjab for it. So what he does is he bans him from coming to Punjab. He says, right, it's not going to happen. You're not coming. 6th of April, forget it. That's, that's Black Sunday, but you're not coming anywhere near my province. So you get this sort of cascade of events where Satyapal and Kichalu want him to come because he can keep the peace in Punjab. You know, they've seen what's happened in Delhi. They also don't want that to happen in Amritsar at they the time They believe in nonviolent resistance. They believe in absolutely in nonviolent resistance. But when Gandhi comes to Punjab, he's stopped at the outskirts by the British on Sir Michael's orders, and he's turned back. He's come back on foot? He's in he's a train? He's on a train. He's on a train. 
He's stopped outside the city limits at a tiny little nowhere, no hope station. The train is stopped. The train is stopped. The British get on and they say, Mr. Gandhi, you're going back. You're not coming into Punjab. And he says, I have every right to, I'm an Indian traveling in my own country. I am allowed to travel. Let me pass. And they say, no. And there's, you know, this whole, in Gandhi's account, you know, a hand on his shoulder, the tap on the shoulder, very gently, you're, you're sent back. You're going, you're not going anywhere. You're going back to Bombay. We're putting you actually on, on the next train. You're going back to Bombay. The thing is, he's safe, but nobody knows that. The news that goes out is that Gandhi's been stopped and he's been taken by the British. They also know these are the same British who fired on unarmed crowds in Delhi and people have died. So the rumor goes sweeping around India, particularly in Ahmedabad. You know, Gandhi is a Gujarati, so in, in, in Ahmedabad, one of the biggest cities in Gujarat. The rumor mill goes into nutty overdrive. They're going to hang Gandhi. They've taken him. They've beaten him up. And so throughout Ahmedabad, this rumor, like a wildfire, Gandhi's gone, Gandhi's gone, they've taken Gandhi, and, Ga- and Ahmedabad catches fire. And there is some dreadful, dreadful violence that takes place, you know, g- groups of men. And again, you know, when you have political unrest, you have people who exploit it. So they go for the banks. They tear out bank managers from two of the banks, set one on fire, shoot another one, stab another and where are uh, Satyapal and Kitchlu at this point? Well, they're in Amritsar um, keeping the peace. Nothing happens in, in Amritsar. Amritsar is, is, is completely peaceful. It's quiet. And that is in itself a little bit of a, a discomfort to the man who's in charge. Because what the man in charge of Amritsar, a man called Miles Irving, sees is something that he's never seen before. He's been in India for a while. But what he sees is Hindus and Muslims united in a way that he thinks is deeply suspicious. Hindus and Muslims hand in hand marking the celebration. Hindus and Muslims eating and drinking together. There's a, there's a celebration that's going to take place three days after that called Ram Normi. It's a Hindu festival where normally, you know, the Muslims will stand on the outskirts and the saffron parades will pass through and everybody sort of jostles along separate but together. But on Ram Normi on the 9th, which is just three days after all of this, this trouble has taken place elsewhere in India, you have Hindus and Muslims holding hands. You have them drinking from the same water vessels, which normally would put a Hindu out of caste. But Irving is seeing all this and he's wiring Sir Michael, who's in Lahore, going, something's coming, something's coming. The Hindus and Muslims are ganging up together. Something is definitely coming. Send troops, send machine guns, send them now because I can't guarantee what's going to happen. So Michael now, again, in his whirlwind of paranoia with his wife and daughter in his house, with all of these reports of violence and bloodshed from elsewhere in India is that it stops here. It's not going to happen here. So he issues an edict which is catastrophic for the city. The two men, Satyapal and Kichlu, the, the doctor and the lawyer, the Gandhians, who have kept the peace in Amritsar this whole time, he orders them to be arrested. But they're arrested in such a really sneaky way. So They're asked to report. Yeah. Come at 10 in the morning turn up, come and have a cup of tea is what they think. They think they're going to discuss the stopping of Gandhi at the city limits. That, you know, he should be allowed to travel to Punjab. We really need But him. instead they're bundled into a car. So they get bundled into a car and they're going to be sent to Dharamshala in Himanshal Pradesh. It's, it's far away, out of the way of Punjab. But the people who brought them there don't know what's happened. You know, they're sort of standing around on the veranda going, are they coming out yet? Are they, com- are they coming out yet? And when they don't come out, these... This little party that comes with Satyapal and Kichli for these talks goes running back into the town and says, they've taken them. They've taken our leaders like they took Gandhi. They've taken them. 
And again, the rumours go around it. They've shot Satyapal and Kitchley. They've hanged Satyapal and Kitchley. They're going to hang Satyapal. And In fact, they're both fine, but no one knows that. No one knows that because nobody's really communicated anything properly. It's just been a little bit of a sneaky trick that come and come to this meeting and then they've been arrested. And so immediately Amritsar and the Punjab, which have been completely peaceful and all the protests have been non-violent, suddenly you get violence. You get violence and you get knots of violence. So, you know, if you read the Indian accounts, it starts off with in, an Indian delegation of pleaders, you know, barristers and lawyers going to Miles Evans saying, habeas corpus, could you please produce these two people? Or what are the charges? Or what's happened? And there are two choke points, you know, bridges in, in the city where, again, you read the British accounts, they say they are charged upon by mobs of Indians. You read the Indian accounts, they say, we were walking across the bridge to try and find out what happened. And volleys are, are fired into the crowd and um, people die. A lot of people die. So suddenly the British Lamritzer who've been living a perfectly normal life, going out riding, doing all the things that Brits in the Raj do, suddenly feel that 1857 is upon them. So in Ahmedabad, they attack the mills, the British-owned mills. They they try and drag out the two people who are in control of a man called Saga and a man called Stuart from, from the mill. They want to kill them. It's actually an Indian policeman who protects them, and he gets killed instead. But in Ahmedabad, the whole place erupts. But in, in you're right. Plumes of smoke in Amritsar, they do, they, you know, they attack the banks, they attack the uh, Amritsar National Bank, uh, they drag out the manager, they stab him, and then they batter him to death, they take another man, Scott, um, they, you know, set him on fire, another man called Thompson is is murdered. So, you know, there are Brits being attacked, and it feels like and, it could be the mass, it could be the mutiny And then again. the kind of, the moment that, in a sense, uh, Sir Michael has been waiting for, a woman is attacked. A woman is attacked. So the people who are shot on the bridge, they are taken to the local hospital. And there is a report that a lady doctor called Miss Easton has refused to treat any of the natives saying, you know, go away and bleed to death. You're all insurrectionists. And she's laughed. And who knows the truth of this, but that certainly is the rumor that goes out. So there are gangs of men wandering around Amritsar trying to find Miss Easton. What they find instead is a missionary called Marcella Sherwood, who's on her bicycle riding through a narrow alleyway and they take her and they beat her they think to death but she just survives and sort of you know the the indian story is that she survives she's sort of left for dead but she manages to crawl into one of the native homes and they when the mob comes back to find her they direct them somewhere else you know that's that's the story from the indian side but marcella showed is certainly very very badly beaten and that's it that's exactly what they, you know, that's the BB girl, that's the the massacre of the innocent. Every nerve every, that the British should be waiting for is, is now every stereotype has been touched. proved correct in the, in the eyes of Dwyer. So it is, it is at that point that Sir Michael swings into action. There are going to have to be troops, more troops. So he commandeers men and he sends them into action. The resulting massacre at Jallianwala Bagh is one of the most infamous moments in colonial history. Do join us next week when we'll explain what happens next. And thank you for listening to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.